The Lord be with you. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to John. Glory to you, Lord. As Jesus passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. The disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, Neither he nor his parents sinned. It is that the works of God might be made visible through him. We have to do the works of the one who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. When he had said this, he spat on the ground and made clay with the saliva and smeared the clay on his eyes and said to him, Go wash in the pill of psyllium which means scent. So he went and washed and came back able to see. His neighbors and those who had seen him earlier as a beggar said, Isn't this the one who used to sit and beg? Some said it is, but others said, No, he just looks like him. He said, I am. So they said to him, How are your eyes opened? He replied, The man called Jesus made clay, and anointed my eyes and told me, Go to Siliam and wash. So I went there and washed and was able to see. And they said to him, Where is he? He said, I don't know. They brought the one who was once blind to the Pharisees. Now Jesus had made clay and opened his eyes on a Sabbath. So then the Pharisees also asked him how he was able to see. He said to them, He put clay in my eyes, and I washed, and now I can see. So some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, because he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, How can a sinful man do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said to the blind man again, What do you have to say about him, since he opened your eyes? He said, He is a prophet. Now the Jews did not believe that he had been blind and gained his sight until they summoned the parents of the one who had gained his sight. They asked him, Is this your son whom you say was born blind? How does he now see? His parents answered and said, We know that this is our son, that he was born blind. We do not know how he sees now, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he is of age, he can speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone acknowledged him as the Christ, he would be expelled from the synagogue. For this reason, his parents said, he is of age, question him. So a second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give God the praise. We know that this man is a sinner. He replied, If he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know is that I was blind and now I see. So they said to him, What did he do to you? 
How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I told you already, and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? They ridiculed him and said, You are that man's disciples. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but we do not know where this one is from. The man answered and said to him, This is what is so amazing, that you do not know where he is from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if one is devout and does his will, he listens to him. It is unheard of that anyone ever opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, would he, would, he would not be able to do anything. They answered and said to him, You were born totally to sin, and you're trying to teach us? Then they threw him out. When Jesus heard that they had thrown him out, he found him and said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered and said, Who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and the one speaking with you is he. He said, I do believe, Lord, and he worshipped him. Then Jesus said, I came into this world for judgment, so that those who do not see might see and those who do see might become blind. Some of the Pharisees who were with him heard this and said to him, Surely we are not also blind, are we? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no sin. But now you are saying we see, so your sin remains. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. Good morning, everybody. Everybody awake? Oh, poor Portola. We're all bloodshot, tired, stumbling into the Mass at 8.30. You know how lucky you guys are at 10.30, by the way? You guys are lucky. 8.30 is too early. Whose dumb idea is this whole taking away an hour thing? We need to stop this madness. Right? <laughs> Praise the Lord. As you can obviously, before we dive into these amazing readings, I'm wearing rose today because we are past the middle of Lent and Holy Week is quickly, quickly in front of our faces. And so remember, we only wore pink twice in the liturgical year, one during Advent and then right now. This will be that visual reminder, boom, Holy Week is coming. Get ready. Don't give up. Light's at the end of the tunnel. My pinkness is all over your faces right now. So. so that's ergo my pinkness. So beautiful though. Rose. Don't call it pink, by the way. Let's get into these readings. Powerful, powerful. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. In the 1970s, as many of you are probably aware, what was going on in the world at that time? It was the Vietnam War, wasn't it? 1975, we pull out, Saigon collapses. And so the communists immediately rush in. August 15th, 
of that same year, they arrest the Archbishop of Saigon. As we've, we've talked about over the years, remember what communism is. It's an atheistic regime hell-bent on transforming a culture and a society. And so whenever it goes into a, a new nation, a new culture, who do they always attack first, by the way? Us. Why? Because when you look at civilization, you cannot separate the Catholic Church from Western civilization. We are utterly intertwined when you look at history, logically. We are a civilizational building enterprise. And so whenever communism understands that, so when it goes in, it says we have to lop off the major cultural force of any society, which is primarily us, Christians in general, but especially the Catholic Church, because we're so hierarchical, it's easy to see us, and say, all right, lop off their head. And then they start going off and, and knocking out the intellectuals. You think of the Khmer Rouge in Cambodia. One of the sticking points of who they, who they took out was that if you had these little indentations on your nose, why? <laughs> people who wear glasses, because who are the people normally wearing glasses? The intellectuals, the cultural movers and shakers. And so what did they, they went in there? You take out the intellectuals, professionals, the priests, the politicians, in order to implement their new world view. Saigon, same thing, still ongoing, by the way. China does the same thing. By the way, we're headed with a major conflict within the next 50 years, by the way. You know what they're doing in our church in China? They're forcing us to put images of Xi Jinping in our, in our sanctuaries, the president of China. Why is that? Same thing. Because what does communism do? What does it hate? It hates having anything above the state. Because what do we proclaim as Christians? You are not God, state. There's somebody above you. You cannot tell us what to do. We've got a true king. That's why communism hates us. They arrest your archbishop there in 1975 by the name of Van Thun. They put him in solitary confinement for the next 13 years. Amazingly, he survived his ordeal. He wrote a powerful book called Witness to Hope. When he was arrested, this is what he writes. I quote it from his book. Great reading, by the way. When I was arrested, the archbishop writes, I had to leave immediately with empty hands. The next day I was permitted to write to my people in order to ask for the most necessary things, clothes, toothpaste. And I also wrote, please send me a little wine as medicine for my stomach ache. Do you see what he's doing? Code words. Send me a little wine for my stomach ache. And the faithful understood right away. Because those commies had no idea. They sent me a small bottle of wine for mass with a label that read, medicine for stomach aches. They also sent me some hosts, bread, the bread we use at mass. And they hid it in a flashlight for protection against the humidity. The police asked, you have stomach aches? Yes. Here's some medicine for you. They gave him the wine. Then notice what happens next. I get moved just thinking about it. I will never be able to express my great joy. Every day, with three drops of wine and a drop of water in the palm of my hand, I would celebrate Mass. So there he is. 
in a solitary confinement by the communists, imprisoned for his Catholic faith, he would take the palm of his hand to mimic our holy altar. He would take his medicine, his wine, three drops in the palm of his hand. And then he would take a drop of water. And we see this, you'll see it in a few moments, by the way. Notice when I prepare the chalice for consecration, I'll pour the wine and then I'll bless the water and I'll put just a, just a little drop right in there. And the prayer there, you, you don't hear me say the prayer, but through the mingling of this water and wine, may we come to share the divinity of Christ who come to share in our humanity. That's a prayer that the priest whispers. The water represents our humanity, the wine, our Lord's beautiful divinity. So here's this priest now in his solitary confinement, celebrating Mass on the palm of his hand. Three drops, one drop of water. In his dark, cold, concrete cell. And then he writes this next. This was my altar, and this was my cathedral. It was true medicine for soul and body, medicine for immortality, remedy so as not to die, but to have life always in Jesus. Those were the most beautiful masses of my life. The most beautiful masses of my life in a concrete communist prison cell, celebrating mass on his holy hand as the altar. The communists could not break him. You and I have a beautiful opportunity now. You and I are on a mission. Our grand mission is unchanged in the last 2,000 years. It is to bring Jesus Christ to everybody we meet. That's our mission as Catholics. That's our mission as baptized Christians. Our goal is to bring Jesus to other people. And I want to lay out before you the religious landscape that's before us, by the way, so that we're not steery-eyed about the challenges because, oh, our work is cut out for us, by the way. Our work is cut out. But I see tremendous hope because our Lord, again, has never left us. You look at 2,000 years of church history, in the darkest periods of human history, our Lord always raises up saints to change the world. St. Augustine, St. Ambrose, St. Benedict, St. Patrick, we're going to celebrate his, his great feast day in a couple of days. Our Lord always raises up in the darkest periods of human history, devout, fervent souls who love him, and we change the world. So our landscape, I'm going to lay out for you now, is kind of depressing, ah, but I see, I see the Lord prepping <laughs> I see you with the eyes of faith. So about 40 years ago, if you did a poll, 90% of all Americans would have identified as Christian. High number in the 90s would have identified as Christian. Today, that number is around 74%. Each decade, the number decreases. I've mentioned this before over the years. So with each passing decade, we are de-Christianizing. The fascist religious group growing in, in the United States today are what's called the nuns, statistically speaking, the nuns. Not religious nuns, but rather nuns who are non-affiliated. Those who have no religion whatsoever. And when you break that down into age categories, so you have the older population, the middle age, and the younger, the group of the nuns grows exponentially. So essentially, as we get younger, we get less and less religious. 
less and less Christian. And the question is, okay, what does that mean? How does that affect it? Well, remember, especially this American grand experiment that we're all involved in, which has produced the greatest, strongest, most vibrant civilization on earth, right? The most wealthiest, the most powerful, all of those amazing things. We were built upon Christian principles. If you look at the Constitution, it is deeply rooted in Judeo-Christian principles. The value of human life, the suspicion of big government, which is why we spread our power, supposedly, between three equal branches. There's a deep suspicion in one-party rule. And that's all rooted in the number one source of which the Founding Fathers always quoted and used to craft the principles by which we built this massive edifice. What book is that? The Holy Bible. Because what does, what does our Judeo-Christian roots give us? It gives us moral precepts, ingrains it into us. It gives us a structure. It gives us a direction of life. In order, and look what it's built. But then now, more and more people are jettisoning their Christian foundations. So what's, what is that going to do, the implications of that? is that now the rules which underpinned all of this will no longer have any appreciation. They will no longer understand. Where does the idea that all men are created equal, where does that come from? Genesis. The value of human life. And when, whenever we replace now God as, as the center of our lives, we don't simply believe in nothing, no. What immediately rushes into that vacuum? The state, one of them. Which is why, again, communism, they're an atheistic religious regime, anti-religious. The state is all-powerful, which is why they are terrified of Christianity, why they always persecute us. Notice this, as we become less and less religious, and we see this now, the power of the state increases. Because now what happens is that because we're no, longer, we're no longer restricted by moral precepts, what happens? We need to encounter more laws in order to counteract our human failings. So more laws, more regulations, and then you see this, this multiplication of the state. It grows more powerful as we get less and less religious. We see that now. Remember what Thomas Jefferson said? That this whole American enterprise is successful insofar as she is a religious people, the United States. Because the beautiful thing what Christianity did and continues to do in us, it gives us an unchangeable moral compass. I don't need the state to tell me that it's wrong to steal and murder. God tells me that through the Ten Commandments. But then if you no longer know the Ten Commandments then, what happens? Then California has to rush in there and give us all these laws. <laughs> you see what that does? And so as we become less and less religious, and we see that, and I mentioned this countless times over the years, what happens? We fill that gap, that God-sized hole, with the four classical substitutes of God. We know them well. We stuff it with money, power, honor, pleasure. We stuff it, those things. But it always fails to give what it promises. And then we see the other side effects of a de-Christianing civilization. 
the uptick of substance abuse, alcoholism, and suicide. Have those gone up? The last, remember, the last three years, our life expectancy has dropped, even prior to COVID, which shocked watchers and statisticians and researchers and cultural watchers. Why? Because we're the most wealthy, the most best technology. Nobody is going hungry at night. We have everything we need materially. And so they always wondered, why are we so materialistically just prosperous and we're killing ourselves still, numbing our pain with substance abuse and alcohol and, and overdosing? Because this isn't a material problem. It's a spiritual one. And so now here comes, now that I put you in such a great mood. Now here's a great opportunity now. Because this landscape is a barren desert increasingly, the refreshing, life-giving water that Jesus comes to offer us looks even more profound now. Because the human heart will never be satisfied with money, power, honor, and pleasure, as, as amazing as those things are. But rather now, people will search out authentic truth, will begin to search and wonder, why am I still hungry when I'm so amazing right now? I'm still thirsty, even though I have seemingly everything that the world tells me, and yet I'm still restless. What is that? Enter you and me. We say, yes, you will always be restless because we were created for God. As the increase of, of all the stats I just said, but you're also beginning to see and, why, and, and hear why I'm very hopeful. Because now people are starting to dabble in the new age, the occult, in Wicca, you ever heard of like these dark practices? What I see there is, I, I see, even though all those things are bad, but what I see is, is that human attempt to grasp at the spiritual again. They're saying, oh, I don't want to be Christian with all the rules and regulations, but I still desire for something for the transcendent and the spiritual. And so the new age, the occult, is, is one step towards that realization. Because they, they'll reject moral precepts because the, the, the attractive thing about the occult and the new age is that I can still kind of feel spiritual. Without, the, without all the Christian baggage and rules and regulations of that. Ah, but then we can take them now and say, ah, you know that desire you have in your heart? All right, let me point to you, to the one who removes our blindness. Now here is where I'm going to punch the hornet's nest. <laughs> We believe as Catholics that the Holy Eucharist is truly him. It is not symbolic. It is truly Jesus Christ who manifests himself truly present behind the signs of bread and wine. But through the words of consecration, it is no longer those things. And I want to reiterate that. Two years ago, the Pew Research did a study on Catholics in the United States. There's 70 million of us here. We are the largest religious body, Christian religious body in the United States. They did a study about the belief in the, in the real presence of the Eucharist. 
Out of that 70 million, you know how many of us believe in the true presence? 30%. 30%. When we we read those results, it was a gut check for many of us priests and bishops. Essentially what it told us, those numbers did, is said that we have failed to pass on the faith to the next generation as priests and as bishops whose duty is to teach. That we have utterly dropped the ball. We have failed you. That if 30% of our very own people no longer believe in the source and summit of which everything flows to and flows from, if we've only reached 30% in the last 40 years, we've got to rethink everything. And so if this is the source and summit of the Christian life now, I want to present to you a great plead, actually, for help from you. I want us, again, to rediscover our Sunday's best. What do I mean by that? Remember your grandparents. How did they dress when they went to Mass? Sharp. (laughs) Why? Because they understood at every single Mass, at least they appreciate it, at every single single Mass, I'm going to meet Jesus. And if I'm going to meet Jesus truly bodily and receive him into my body in Holy Communion, and then my appearance must reflect the reality of that pivotal event. You see, when we used to dress more formally at Mass, we were conveying through our clothes the invisible reality of the Holy Eucharist. See, that's what we are as human beings. The external invokes and reveals the invisible reality. This summer, one of the Sheridans was getting married here. And Phoebe, many of you know her, she will be absolutely beautiful in her dress. She'll be the star of the show. It's beautiful. She'll spend thousands of dollars on her dress probably, She'll protest down that aisle beautifully. Could you imagine if her husband, or her soon husband-to-be showed up to that wedding in sweatpants? Would Phoebe be mad at Brett? She'd punch him in the face. What are you doing? Why are you wearing sweatpants to our wedding night? No. Hopefully, Brett will take a shower and look nice and comb his hair. And wear a nice suit. Why? Because through his dress, through her dress, through their outfit, through everybody who will be attending that wedding, we're all going to look sharp that day. We're expressing through our clothing the invisible reality and power of what's about to happen, the creation of a new Christian family. Will it be less? If we all showed up in T-shirts and tank tops, will it be less than? No, the reality of 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 the marriage will still exist, absolutely. But through our external wearing of our clothing, we reveal the beauty of the marriage. Another analogy. You know, we have many law enforcement in our parish. Why do they wear uniforms? In order to convey the invisible reality of their authority given to them by the state. Because they have the power to give us speeding tickets. Does their authority still exist if they wore jeans and t-shirts on duty? Absolutely, they can still arrest us. 
But through their outfit, through their badge, through their belt, through their vest, through their outfit, they, they, they convey, I have authority given to me. The external reality conveying an invisible reality. The cathedral in Milan in northern Italy, one of the most beautiful buildings in all the world. The foundation stone was built, was laid in the year 1368. A long time ago. Guess when we finished the cathedral of Milan? 1965. It took us over 600 years to build the Cathedral of Milan. Why did we spend all that time to build this magnificent edifice? We could have simply met in the field and had Mass there. The same grace that flows through the Mass in the Cathedral of Milan is the same grace that flowed through the palm of the hand of Archbishop Van Thun. But our human nature desires to encounter the physical in order to raise our minds to the visible interior reality. And so here's the great challenge now. I want us to return and to rediscover our Sunday's best. Because when that nun walks through those doors, and by the way, I know this happens because I speak to them. The walk through the doors of, of our church, not knowing anything, but they're hungry and thirsting for something because everything in the world is not satisfying them. And so they'll walk into here, not knowing what we teach as, as, a, as, a, as a Christian body, and they'll look around us. They'll look around at you, you, you and me, and ask themselves, what do they believe? Is what's happening every single Sunday important? And now imagine if we were all dressed as, we, as our grandparents used to be dressed. What is the message that's going to convey? Oh man, what's ever happening here? I don't understand. Father sounds weird. He's chanting all this crazy stuff. They're doing standing, kneeling, standing, sitting. But it's important because the physical reality is conveying that invisible reality. Now, does God care what we wear? No, no. He cares about our hearts, primarily. But the exterior reality is important still to, one of, to all of us because we're human and we need the physical to point higher. And so that is the great landscape that's before us right now. As we get less and less Christian, our witness to the beauty and reality of Jesus becomes even more important and more radiant. And so I invite you, next Sunday, or next time you go to Mass, well, daily Mass is a little more informal, but next weekend, because I'm not going to tell you, all right, wear this pants, wear this, wear these shoes, go, out, go on a buy in a Marnie suit. No. You're free, you're free to do what you please. But ask yourself, I'm about to go encounter Jesus Christ in a few moments. How will I present myself? And then that's the principle we use. Because I then think through our dress, we can convey the deepest longing of the human heart, which is found only in Jesus Christ. And who will make himself present in a few moments in the Holy Eucharist. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.